0: Hi, you're listening to a podcast of the best bits of breakfasters for week ending March 24th. We're on Triple R every weekday morning from 6 to 9 a.m., broadcast live from Melbourne, Australia. Coming up on this podcast, Oslo Davis illustrates the world of picture books for adults. Mel Browning talks about the Australian Dingo Foundation and introduces us to her dingo friend Minka. And Michael Harden broadens our perspective on custard.
1: Joined by author and podcaster Zoya Patel chatting about her new book, Once a Stranger, the history of the Google Doodle with Dan Salmon and hypothetical renovating.
2: On World Water Day, we probed Melbourne Water Wonk, David Norman, Simonia Baldy reviews the Oscar-nominated documentary, All the Beauty and the Bloodshed, but we start the week with Nat rightfully demanding a hobby update.
3: Melbourne's Own.
0: Triple R.
1: So I thought we could do a bit of talking hobbies, extra curricular activities, staring out the window. Mm. You know, <laughs> whatever you've been up to. Because I know yesterday I gave everyone a bit of an update on my social basketball team, um, the the Dirty Bloomers, We had a fantastic match. Um, but yeah, curious. We didn't. I didn't. I wanted to kind of hear about what you two have been up to. How donkey's going? I know when I was in Adelaide, hmm. Daniel, I heard that you wanted to get into remote control cars. It was a bit yeah, was, toys. there's
2: obviously some sort of void that I was looking to fill. <laughs> uh, there's it's Her- like
1: me and parks.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Hearn's hobbies. I mean, there are some stores where I kind of want an excuse to go in there. Yeah, and Hearn's hobbies. I think. Is if that's the way I'm pronouncing it correctly, mm. on Flinders Street has been there for, I don't know, as long as I can remember. And it's stocked full of remote control cars and trains and model kits. And I've yep. got friends who build planes and that sort of stuff. Toy planes? To- well, model planes. Model planes, and, um And Rod Stewart, who was in town recently, I think he books out a hotel room next to his... Where he's staying, and he books out a second hotel room so he can build his model train set.
4: Wow,
1: that's brilliant! Mm. So this is it. Is this about getting to Rod Stewart?
2: That's basically. <laughs> <laughs> we all need an angle, yeah. <laughs> uh, and and yeah. So remote control cars. I don't know if it's an aspirational thing or yeah. or what. You know, I, should I? If I have toy money, should I be giving it to a child?
0: Yeah, I, exactly. I, I deeply encourage this. Yeah, I, I am fortunate. I think I might have even mentioned that I have an uncle who is sort of a, a champion. RC racer and also engineers, safety lights, traffic lights. Amazing. So it's deeply involved. So perhaps we could arrange some kind of a, yeah, rendezvous. I'd love to know what, because I tried to get to the bottom of this and I still
2: don't quite know, Mm. that if you're you're – in a competition mm. of remote control car racing, do you have to stand somewhere or do you run around the track so you've got a good eye line?
1: That's interesting. I would imagine if you were running around the track, there would have to be some parameters because then you could kind of get in the way of other
2: your competitor. Well, um, um, yeah, you, I suppose we wouldn't be stomping. I mean, yeah, you're right. That definitely would happen. Uh, but – well, I don't Please, mean like, there'd be some decorum. Is yeah, that what you're saying, yeah, Natalie? Yeah. No, well, I wonder, like, are you stomping all over? I'm not arguing that you would stand on the track, but there must be an optimal position.
0: From what I understand, from what I've seen, there absolutely is because the speed of the cars is such that it would be impossible to maintain sort of uh the same speed running around the track and so absolutely there's a viewing point from what i understand okay wow yep.
1: you think you'd be at like a higher vantage point absolutely and then it becomes about 20, 20 vision or making sure that you've got the right glasses you know looking yeah. at you daniel like i wonder but i suppose like the, your dexterity of the controls like where does the skill really
2: lie that's what I want to well, know. Well,
0: it's in the engineering as and the technology as well as the yeah, aerodynamics of the shell. From what I understand, I'm far from an expert, and also yeah, throttle control. Wow, textality. you know a lot. Well, I suppose from cool. conversations, but it is a thrilling sport, and I think it's something that you would you would find fascinating, okay. Daniel.
2: Well, I'll, I'm going to dip my toe in. I can't wait. But I wonder whether it was going to be something that I would maybe reward myself for. But yeah, you, I suppose... oh, you deserve every reward. <laughs> okay. All The
1: reward, well, it's not really, I don't know, we'll just peer press you into it.
2: (laughs) And then then where would you go? Like, is there somewhere obvious? I mean, you could start at the park, couldn't you?
1: I mean, I'm clearly not clued up to remote control cars like you two are. I'm thinking he's going to the park, he's just having a little around the well, tree pretty, uh, and back. Well, the but grass,
2: no. I don't think they go well. Well,
0: there's off-road and on-road wow. from what I understand. Different tyres would be required. <laughs> um, this is where the, the limits of my knowledge are. But I do know that there's many groups online that you can kind of discuss. There's meetups as well as competitions. Yeah, right, because yeah. I just
2: looked at a Formula One version, like yeah. a Monaco uh, – remote control car and the front of it looks so sharp that it would kind of like a little shin bone like it would uh like it would slice – it would decapitate you from the ankles. <laughs> I've
1: sauntered into this conversation so naive about what I thought a remote control car was. Mm. Wow, well, I was thinking you were going to Toy World. <laughs> and can we get a quick update on Donkey as well? Well, actually, as
0: soon as you mentioned it before, because very sadly, unfortunately in the new division the games have been a little bit later.
1: Because you went up a division, didn't you, from did. last – We did. That's right. We had. you uh, played in the
0: final. We were runners-up, but we were still promoted to first division. Which is Monday Mixed Division 1 In Carlton North as part of Futsal for Life Mm -hmm. And I'm looking at It's round 4 And I think that there was a fiercely Contested battle on Monday Wow! Sadly it was a 3-0 Loss But I think we're just sitting at seventh um, at the moment on the table.
1: Okay. And can I ask as well, I'm curious, because we've got – do you have like a a donkey WhatsApp group, a messenger? We do. And so I'm
0: kind of keeping up to date uh, with with what's happening and great – uh, team spirit happening at the moment. Yeah,
1: fantastic. But the grand
0: final was only five minutes
2: ago. Like,
1: I know. Where's the celebration? I know. There's it's... no
0: pause. It's I know. constant motion in this.
1: Did you have a party yeah. or a celebration of any kind?
0: I think we had we had private moments of, of celebration. Oh, no, that's beautiful. What yeah, a mad but... Monday.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and do you get a
2: photo?
0: We did in this case, actually. So, um, yeah, that's something to treasure.
2: Yeah. O- Oslo, can I just do a recap? Oslo uh, says that there are people who pick up the crash car drivers stand up on an elevated platform. Yes. And the law has two tracks and there's a big RC club out there. And uh, another (laughs) listener says, you stand on a raised pavilion (laughs) and there's a pit crew of useless children.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Independently yours, Triple R.
5: 102.7.
2: In books this Tuesday we're joined by the always elegant, esteemed and erudite Oslo Davis. Morning, Oslo. <laughs> Good morning.
6: Thank you. Wow. Uh,
2: now we're talking. looking at a genre close to your heart. Yeah. Well, I-
6: actually I didn't plan it this way. I just thought, well, what can I talk about? And uh, I went to my bookshelf and had a look around and I thought, gosh, I've got a lot of uh, gift book books mm. on my bookshelf. Um, uh, mainly because I think the, the, um, the thing that attracts me to them is uh, they're often quite... Uh, Funny and and full of drawings are two things that I sort of uh, gravitate to mm. generally.
2: So um, and so they're gifts that you've received.
6: Um, yes, and also stuff that I've sought out myself. Um, so the, the the genre which I think is probably a little bit unsung uh, that I'd like to talk about today, and and I've brought in some examples is, is is I guess in a in a sort of a nutshell those funny little picture books. Um, uh, you see at the counters of of bookshops that are mostly for grown-ups. I'm not talking kids' books. I'm talking sort of... Um those those books that uh, you see at the counter of a, of a bookshop uh, uh, or in the gift section of a bookshop. And they're usually written by people who, um, you, you know, there might be New Yorker cartoonists who've taken the step up into publishing and decided to expand on one little joke that they had and turned it into a three-book <laughs> oh, series. <laughs> what a sick burn. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or the other way around, and, uh, which is quite interesting as well, where you've got TV writers or, you know, people from Saturday, Saturday Night Live or or somewhere and they've, uh, I don't know, if it's stepping down into a, into publishing uh, or something that's less sort of profitable uh, and, and written a book as well. So yeah. this is a sort of world in which um, these people are working.
1: Or you find as well, just going back to the TV thing of like the darker minds, I feel like in comedy writing head into like cartoons and animation and explore those ideas. Do you find these books to be quite dark?
6: Yeah, for sure. I, I think a lot of the writers and comedians don't want to do picture book they're like oh, I don't have any connection with kids I don't understand them I don't have any ideas about you know this is how I feel basically <laughs> uh, and so what, what do I do I still want to make something uh, and tell my jokes uh, and so this sort of adult picture book jokey book
2: gift thing is kind of yeah. where they all end up. Well, you mentioned SNL and Jack Handy comes to mind, I suppose.
6: Oh, Jack Handy is uh, is is sort of a god when it comes to these little gift books. Uh, he's put out uh, a few now uh, and continues to write in the Shouts and Murmurs sections of The, the New Yorker and, um, uh, you know, he does things called, uh, oh, I forget what it's called, what's it called? Um, Fuzzy Memories and, um, oh, it's completely forgotten, um, but, uh, yeah, These funny little things but I wanted to talk about um one book which everyone probably has on their bookshelf is is uh, a book by or a couple of books by Edward Gorey who I think he sort of revolutionized or caused a renaissance in in this sort of genre when he put out or his estate or his company or whatever put out a collection of his books uh and one of the most famous ones is the Gashley Crumb Tinies, which is an alphabet book essentially about the um, the unfortunate and uh, bizarre and quite hilarious deaths of children. Uh, so uh, untimely deaths. Uh, and it goes through, as people might know, uh, because it is it was quite popular when it came out in the 90s and continues to sell, I think. Uh, you know, it was a kind of a you know sarcastic rebellion against um you know that traditional view of childhood being sort of sweet and sunny and idyllic and and all of a sudden you've got these uh, these poor little <laughs> Kids who've, you know, <laughs> been run through by 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 a by a stick or um, Fanny who was sucked dry by a leech or you know uh, Leo L is for Leo who swallowed some tacks. And, um, <laughs> Neville uh, N is for Neville who died of ennui. <laughs> but the beauty of these books uh, and and Edward Gorey's specifically is that not only does he come up with these crazy kind of uh, concepts, he draws these beautiful pictures uh, that are, you know, hand-drawn, um, reminiscent perhaps of sort of old Victorian or Edwardian times, you know, in minutely cross-hatched uh, black, dark, you know, very evocative of a mood and uh, packages it all up in this beautiful little book that sort of you can keep coming back to. Yeah. yeah.
2: Do you keep coming? How long is the longest you've stared at a drawing? <laughs> yeah, well, it,
6: yeah, I mean, it's sort of funny when it comes to graphic novels and things like that, I generally just read the words and and and, and then put it down. Uh, I'm not one of these people to luxuriate in looking at a picture for too long. But because they are a graphic novel, and Edwards uh, as well, you can come back to them. You can see that picture in a new light five years later or, or whatever, and you can reread it. It has a has a certain depth to
2: it. Yeah. Are there any other dark titles you want to... Yeah, re-practice? well, the other one that I've brought in as well was The, doubt,
6: the Doubtful Guest... Um, which is uh, another one of his famous books about this aristocratic, again Edwardian or Victorian um, family of people who live in a manor, then all of a sudden uh, this weird sort of penguin type creature appears wearing sneakers and just uh, hangs around and won't go away. Uh, The thing, the doubtful guest just starts stealing things and throwing them into the lake and Uh, hiding in the terrain and and looking up this chimney. And and then at the end of the book, um, you know, it's not a spoiler, but it's sort of, uh, uh, you know, the last line of the book is, he came 17 years ago and to this day has shown no intention of going away.
0: So is is latent horror a kind of a feature of a lot of these books?
6: Yeah, there is a sort of a menace there. And uh, I think that's what appeals to adults but you know as we know anything that appeals to adults appeals to kids as well and so it has that very sort of broad catchment area of, of, <laughs> of an audience and um, you know The Doubtful Guest is a classic and I love the last picture on, the, on this book because the characters are 17 years older you know the, the drawings of the children earlier on in the book are now kind of grown men. Yeah.
1: It sounds like a great
2: book week costume
1: <laughs> seek revenge on the teacher and then like put the kid in the costume and then don't pick it up for like an hour or two
2: (laughs) you're on a winner when the title gives you a laugh aren't you well yeah and and which leads me to my next one thanks
6: um
0: because (laughs) uh, uh,
6: this is by patricia marks and roz chast and it's called you can only yell at me for one thing at a time (laughs) (laughs) and it's about um i guess it's sort of a piss take on those sort of relationship advice books you know um don't go to bed fighting with your partner, that sort of thing. But it sort of takes it to the next level and it's sort of... um, The start of the introduction written by Patricia Marks says, falling in love is easy, agreeing about how to load the dishwasher is hard. (laughs) So it's in that sort of vein and it it includes uh, these sort of little aphorisms or messages or bits of advice accompanied by a great drawing by Roz Chast, who is a New Yorker cartoonist and has been drawing and making books for many, many years. Um, One of the ones that I... Loved and picked out for this was um, if you must breathe, don't breathe loudly. <laughs> Anyone who's you know in a relationship will sort of know what I'm talking about. Um, there's a there's a classic drawing of two people in a bed looking very happy, and it, the caption says, "Queen size beds, king size blankets." <laughs> um, uh, and then another one, which is kind of, again, taps into that darkness, I, th- I think, says live somewhere big enough that each of you can think the other is dead, um, <laughs> which is kind of nice. <laughs> you know, you need to have this sort of space idea that sort of you need to really get away from people. I,
1: I love it. That it's a kind of attacking these like societal norms that we kind of like aspire to, like, oh, have kids, fall in love, have a marriage. But it's like
6: uh, it's not all what you think. Yeah, yeah. and it's, it's it's real, I think. It's more real and, and cuts to the chase and it Accepts that you know uh, living with someone is hard, and mm. uh, you know you've got to got to work really hard to make it work, and you know often it doesn't, and that's life, and you just roll on. But it, uh,
2: it's also an example of maybe an ideal best expressed through a drawing in cartoon.
6: Yeah, mm. well, that's it. I mean, cartoons are quite disarming, and they they relax the viewer. I think to to enter into a world or a. a you know, a situation where they can sort of soak in information or, or whatever. Uh, if it was, uh, you know, just a, a bit of advice with a picture of a lilac, you know, you, you <laughs> wouldn't you wouldn't read it, you know. <laughs> yes, <exactly. laughs> but if it's got a picture of Rozchess drawing of a couple being angry with with each other on a couch, yeah, I'm all in. Yes.
2: <laughs> well, we might we might post your collection online if that's all right. Um, yeah. May, does. Oslo's Melbourne Illustrated Adventures in the world's most tolerated city. Cracker mention.
6: <laughs> yeah, I should have brought it in, but uh, <laughs> uh, um, no, it's uh, it's 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 certainly not up to the colour of these of these books. And um, yeah, I mean, next time you're in the, in a bookshop, uh, don't feel too uncomfortable about lingering near the counter. You know, I think they put those books in the wrong spot because you want to look at them, but you're lining up to buy a book and it's awkward. So That's right. Yeah. And
2: you're flicking and laughing. Yeah. Yes. It's not the place to do that. <laughs> <laughs> right in from the cash register. Uh, Oslo Davis, thanks so much. Amazing. My pleasure. Thanks.
7: Triple R on FM,
1: digital, online and via the app.
2: For a thrilling Feature Creatures this week, we're joined by Director of the Australian Dingo Foundation, Mel Browning. Mel, welcome to Breakfasters.
5: Thanks, Jan. It's great to be here. Thanks it, for having me. Oh, it's our pleasure. And you've brought a guest with you. I did. I have Minka Dingo, who is um, my own dingo, under my own dingo license. Mm. So he's come to say hello to you all. Gorgeous. There's a dingo in the studio. <laughs> <laughs> How do you get a dingo license? Um, it's through the um, wildlife Department, so it's like a a specialized wildlife license, and you have to have a compliant enclosure because they're incredibly adept at digging and climbing and jumping. And but look, having said all that, I don't recommend a dingo as a pet because the commitment's greater than a marriage, and they are not compliant like a dog. Whereas a dog um, really looks to the human mm-hmm. for clues. A dingo stays very aloof and independent. Oh, yeah. And
0: so what what are the sort of the channels of communication in that case?
5: Channels of communication yeah, with the dingo? Yeah. Well, they're, they're problem solvers. Mm. So whereas a dog will eyeball you and look for you to solve their problems, a dingo will solve its own problems. So we've had Yale University students out in Australia on a number of occasions and they've done um, canine cognition tests on on canines around the world and dingoes are shaping up as being the most intelligent canine species on the planet because of their problem-solving abilities. So they're not looking to humans to solve their problems or um, and their eye contact is very different. They'll glance at you for about three seconds and then look away, yeah. whereas a dog will eyeball you. I want a treat, you know. Mm. <laughs> exactly. Dingoes are Australia's
1: only land apex predator. That's right. And how do you think they're perceived, like, in the broader culture, in the media?
5: Um I think they're an iconic species Mm -hmm. that most Australians love. The confusion comes when we're talking about management of dingoes around livestock. So dingoes are killed under the guise of wild dog control. So um, they're the most controversial species. They have no... Uh, federal protection they're the only native animal with no federal protection and if you think in victoria we started our first bounty on their scalps in 1838 and 187 years or whatever it is later we still have a bounty on their scalps in victoria so if you're a recreational hunter you can you can shoot and scalp a dingo and um hand in that scalp for $120.
2: Right. What are the proposals presently for dingoes at the prom that that Um, we're reading about?
5: Look, the current proposal doesn't include dingo rewilding. It is something they have discussed as a possible future inclusion because a balanced ecosystem requires a balance of predators and prey. At the moment, the prom is overrun with introduced predators or novel predators. So your foxes and your cats that our native species haven't evolved with. The dingo's been the apex predator in Australia for thousands and thousands of years. It's evolved with our native species and biodiversity prior to Europeans' arrival was abundant and the dingo, as the top predator, regulated the whole ecosystem. So what happens when you take out the top predator? The whole ecosystem collapses. And it's just common sense. What's going to replace the native apex predator are these introduced what we call meso predators. And we know now that the science is showing you take out the dingoes and take out the foxes and you get feral cats in much greater numbers and they're destructive. So we have a native predator that keeps everything in balance and is positive for the environment. We're still killing it off. Then that allows for a, a mesopredator release, it's called, a very invasive and destructive introduced predators like your cats and foxes. Mm.
2: So if we were to use the dingo in this way
5: at the prom, mm. would we be getting the dingoes from you? Look, that's um, something that's, that's sort of debatable. We do have dingoes at the Australian Dingo Foundation Sanctuary that, aren't, um, that are very wary of humans still. Some of them have been surrendered out of the wild, and we've deliberately not handled them too much to keep that fear of humans because the biggest challenge for dingoes, and, you know, you would have heard the stories on Fraser Island, is poor human behaviour where um, tourists are feeding them. And, look, any wild animal will become food aggressive if humans are feeding them. So the worst outcome for the dingoes would be a dingo that's used to humans and and feel safe around humans. Mm-hmm. You know, Minky Mink is lying here on the floor quite relaxed. Um, he wouldn't be the type of dingo you'd want to read wild at the prom. You'd want, you know, a dingo that had been recently surrendered out of the wild. Um, or you'd want a dingo in the surrounding similar habitats to the prom. So like your crowaging along National Park where dingoes are that coastal southern range of of Victoria Um, and dingoes are very sentient species so they will bond for life and they live in family packs. So it'll be mum, dad, the cubs from the previous breeding season and they breed once a year and those cubs will then help raise this year's cubs Um, and then at two they go off and try and find their own territories. Um, So you'd want to have a mum and dad bonded pair Um, And and that's quite easy to achieve. The the recreational hunters know if they trap a dingo and lie in wait, the mate won't be far away. So they'll get two for one. Okay,
1: Um, But there does seem to be, so am I understanding correctly, like is there declining numbers in dingoes and they're not protected because there is this kind of misconception that they're kind of a a form of a wild
5: dog, they're a hybrid of a dog. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So... The crazy thing about Victoria, let's take Victoria because we're in Victoria, um, is that dingoes are a listed threatened species in Victoria and that um, species listing happened in 2008. And yet in 2012, we started um, the National Wild Dog Action Plan which was a proactive nil-tenure approach to killing wild dogs. So government policy in Victoria around wild dogs is driven by livestock interests. So where dingoes are meant to be protected on public lands in their remaining range, and they've pretty much been wiped out across most of Victoria, we have dingoes still in the Mallee and across the high country in East Gippsland. So in those remaining ranges, they're meant to be protected. But as soon as that threatened species listing um, came into effect, we had the Ag Department go to the federal government and get what's called an order in council to unprotect them on private land and in massive three-kilometre buffer zones around those private lands. So if you think of a little sheep farmer up in the high country... um, that boundary around his property, where dingoes are unprotected, extends deep into national parks and, and state forests. So, we have 20 government employed doggers out there full time killing dingoes in those zones. The biggest threat to dingoes is the killing of them. Mm-hmm. We also have the bounty, so, recreational hunters can claim $120 on their scalp. And we have massive 1080 poison programs. Um, including aerial baiting. Aerial baiting's been happening in Victoria since 2014. What's aerial baiting, sorry? So aerial baiting is they take meat baits Mm. and they inject them with 1080 poison and they drop them from aircraft in remote areas to kill dingoes in the high country. Mm-hmm. Um,
2: so you have two dingoes. Yes. You refer to yourself as mummy. What, what do your <laughs> na- neighbours make of this
5: situation? <laughs>
2: yeah.
5: uh, my neighbours love them. Mm-hmm. So I think dingoes evoke a real sense of um, interest. I, I, I take them walking on leads in the neighbourhood and, and people seem to instantly recognise a dingo from a dog, which is really wonderful um, because... The biggest threat, the biggest problem with a dingo is they look like a dog Mm. Um, and really we call them a cat in a dog suit because their behaviour is much more cat-like. They're very aloof and independent and um, very um, agile. Uh, They've got a monkey brain, so their intelligence is like a monkey. They're like a snake on legs because they can hyperextend every um, joint um, and their their jaw is the widest part. So wherever their head can go, everything else can follow. So dingoes are water diviners. They showed the Aboriginal people where to find water in the desert. So they could sniff out artesian water. They could burrow down like a snake on legs with everything following the wide head and find water. So everything about the dingo is... Form and function. Their, nature has designed this perfect canine to fulfil that role of apex predator. And as an apex predator, their role is to pick off the old, the sick, the sick, the injured, the weak to keep the genetics strong of their prey species.
2: Mm. Minka's coat's gorgeous. I know. Yeah. How do you wash Minka? Is I it...
5: don't. Oh. Really. So if you put your nose to Minka, there's no body odor. He doesn't smell like a dog, Mm. so as an apex predator, again, he can't. The the prey would be alerted to him in their environment if they could smell him. So he has no smell.
1: And you were saying as well, he has like 360 degree vision with his eyes. Yeah.
5: So if you look at Minka, not only is his head the widest part, his eyes are on a 45 degree angle. So his eyes aren't facing forward; they're 45 degrees sloping up and 45 degrees angled on his face. So that gives him 200-degree peripheral vision without even turning his head. Now, because of the laxity of the joints, he can rotate his head 180 degrees. So he can be sitting on the floor here and see 360 degrees around him. He's watching all of us right now. Every single um, sense on a dingo is finely, finely tuned. If you look at his ears, he has opera house erect ears that are fully furred, that pick up sounds, he can hear a heartbeat at 30 metres. And being the native prey of the, the kangaroo is the main native prey of the dingo, he will listen for the heartbeat of which kangaroo is labouring the most to then single out for his meal for his family. It's brutal. Um, yeah, look, it's it, that's nature. Yeah. And, and, and normally the labouring heartbeat is the mummy kangaroo carrying a massive joey and the joey will be thrown.
2: Yeah, right. And if
5: that joey survives, his genetics are strong enough okay. to
2: survive. And where, where's, where can we pat a dingo? Where, where, where can
5: you pat a dingo? <laughs> yeah. Well,
2: you can answer the question the way you interpret it.
5: Yeah, so um, we do um, tours at the um, Australian Dingo Foundation Sanctuary in Toulonvale. So yep. Toulonvale's between Melton and Gisborne. And um, you have to book. Mm-hmm. And you can come and have an education um, session, which is about half an hour, and then you can interact with some of the dingoes there. And as I said, some of them are habituated to people, they're calm around strangers, others are more timid. So the natural um, temperament of a dingo is curious about people but wary and timid.
2: Yes, and just on their body, maybe not the top of the head.
5: Yeah, so to pat a dingo on top of the head... Uh, for me to do it for him, he's fine because yeah. he knows me. But for, for a stranger to just reach in and pat the top of his yeah. head, that's kind of a bit of a threatening move for him.
2: All right. Well, thank you so much for bringing in Minka. Uh, who's, who's Minka's partner? Luali. Luali. Okay. <laughs> and they're missing each other right now? Oh
5: she would be. All right. She's an anxious little one. <laughs> yeah.
2: Uh, I tell you what that was fun. Mel Browning <laughs> from the Australian Dingo Foundation. You can head to dingofoundation.org for more information. Thank you Mel and Minka.
5: Thanks so much Dan. Triple R. I'm hungry. I want
7: something to eat. Something with a crunch and very sweet.
2: Michael Harden's here to save us before the show goes to Custard. Morning, Michael. <laughs> Good morning. Always happy to help. No, yes, exactly. Now, custard is a metaphor, but you're, you're bringing it literally. Like
8: Literally bringing the custard. Mm-hmm. So, yes, yeah, so it um, it's one of those foods that I kind of, the more you think about it, the more it's sort of fascinating. It's got its tendrils everywhere, custard. So it's sort of like, you know, it, it comes across, I think, from a Euro sensibility that you've got a kind of an idea that it's sort of this sort of sweet, Homely kind of thing, but the the way that like my it sort of the, the bell went off in my head the other day was I was at a fantastic um, Japanese restaurant, um, reasonably new called Leone, which is um, at Lincoln Square in off Lincoln Square in um, Carlton, and I was eating Mushi. Which is, um, if you're not aware, Chowin Mushi is a, is a, a savoury egg custard, and it is steamed, and it's made with it, like instead of milk or cream in it, it's like eggs whipped, and then it's mi- mixed with dashi, so it's got a it's got a like a seafoody, savoury umami kind of quality to it. And the way that it's cooked is sort of like you, it's in a lidded cup that's steamed, and so that you put the put layers of things in it. You can put. Chicken, or you can put fish or you can put vegetables like this one that I was doing had little bits of fish and mushroom in it. layers of that and then you pour the egg custard in and then you steam it really gently. And so it's this really elegant, glistening, soft, smooth flavour that's got that sort of slightly salty, fishy thing. It's one of the most delicious things and this was a really good one and I was thinking custard is kind of amazing because it can do lots of different things. You know, we think of it as like traditional Euro custard is, um, you know, you're looking at something that's made with milk or cream and a bit of sugar and some eggs and, uh, you know, can be pouring or it can be baked or it can be steamed and sort of like in all the different things. Like you look at, you know, different dessert, like the desserts just alone, the list of it, it goes, goes across cuisines. We've got, you know, you've got things like, you know, cheesecake is basically, there's a, you know, the Amer- like the American style cheesecake is like a baked custard. You've got things like clafoutis and they've got, you know, all of the different versions of creme brulee. Creme Catalan, you know, all of those ones where it's sort of like, you know, it starts <laughs> off with that custard mixture and then do something to it. It's sort of like there's sort of, you can, it, it works across lots of different cuisines. So, um, and the thing I like about it is that it's it's got this sort of homely kind of quality to it. Like you sort of think custard and I think for Anglo-Europeans particularly, uh, you sort of think puddings and you think. Christmas, you know, yeah, plum pudding, and those sort of things. And it's totally. that, that real comfort food sort of thing. But I love the fact that custard is actually kind of a bit of, of a diva in terms of when you're cooking it because mm-hmm. you actually have to pay attention to it. It needs work and everything and it needs to be sort of smooth and elegant. Like even if you're putting it with the like chunkiest kind of pudding, it's like the idea of custard, you know, you look at pouring custard. And you don't want lumps in it. You don't want it to be have air pockets. You don't want anything. You just need it to be sort of smooth, silky kind of a rich addition to what you're doing. It's, it's like
1: a-, a white sauce. Like yes. oh, it's got to be constant. You've, absolutely, it's, it demands all of your attention in the preparation.
8: Yeah, absolutely. It's sort of like you. It's like you know, and it's got the difference between buying it and making it it's kind of like you know it's something like mayonnaise you know it's like you can you know you can buy decent mayonnaise but it's never going to taste like the mayonnaise that you've made yourself that you've sort of paid attention to and sort of like put some care and attention into it and I do surprisingly it might surprise you but I do like a bit of a diva (laughs) to food that needs some care and attention you
1: never
8: sort of like just rough and ready (laughs) just slap it in there but uh yeah so it's um you know I'm a big fan of custard and, uh, and all the different ways. Of so there's the three main types. There's baked or steamed or stirred. So, and they all have their own ways of thinking. And one of the things that's sort of like you think of baked custard, so that's when you're looking at things like creme Catalan and, and creme brulee and stuff. But um, also, uh, the, you know, one of the most famous baked custards is quiche because that's actually a savoury custard. So it's basically the same ingredients: the the milk or the eggs, and the um, you know, and 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 a little bit of you put a little bit of flour in that, and um, you know those those sort of things, and you put it all together, um, but you just don't add the sugar to it and then you add sort of other things like either, you know, bacon or vegetables or whatever. So and it's basically a custard that's baked in a pastry shell.
2: Some people are a bit weird about quiche, aren't they?
8: They are. I'm not I've, no, I've never got what I think it was because of like I don't know when it was, was the eighties or nineties where there was that book that came out about real men don't eat quiche. <laughs> 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 I think it's reputation is Poisoned kind of the like been well slightly a lot of you a know, you of sort a of feel a feat of it's a of it's a bit of quiche Lorraine. it's sort of it's sort of like, you know, of it's sort of like hey, I'm okay with my sexuality, <laughs> yes. yeah. But you know, if we if
2: threw if we promote it as cold custard, as what savory custard savory Maybe. custard you know mm.
8: baked in a beautiful you know pie shell so yeah. so uh, you know it's a really there's some really good things it's uh to that that it does.
2: Do you think
1: that custard lives like in its peak kind of popularity in the same era as quiche, like eighties nineties, or is it? No. It
8: could, it could have, but I sort of I think that it's sort of like it's much more of a stalwart in our okay. lives than I think that we kind of realize. Like even things like you know you're looking at you know vanilla slices, Portuguese tarts, you know custard tarts, you know all of those sort of things like profiteroles, yeah. you know chocolate eclairs, yes. you, know, you know you know with the with the custard fillings, you know even donuts and stuff. So it's actually sort of turns up in a lot more spaces than you think it might. It really and it's is. Kind of yeah, like, it's and a... it's also like quite big in Chinese mm. cooking. A lot of it. Asian cuisines, like not not just Japanese, because they, they use that, and like the, in Chinese cooking, there is like similar things. Which is one, one of the loveliest things I think is a Chinese dessert, which is kind of a similar thing to chawanmushi. So it's basically like a steamed egg custard. So you, like you mix the mix the eggs up um, and um, with with some broth, like you know, in Chinese cooking, it probably wouldn't be so like probably is in, in certain cases a dashi, but in Chinese cooking, a lot a lot of times chicken broth. And, uh, you know, just – and so you do it so it's like – and make sure that you don't – if you're making it, you make sure you don't beat the eggs too much because it needs to have that silken kind of quality and if you beat the eggs, it's too aerated. Mm -hmm. So you need it to sort of – you can scoop the air bubbles off at the end once you've mixed it with the chicken broth. And then you steam it and then you just pop – you know things over the top that you like, so it's sort of like it's like a really delicious breakfast dish with like chopped chives and a little bit of you know maybe chili and some some fried shallots and that sort of stuff. And so it's this sort of savory, delicious, comforting sort of thing that happens in Chinese cuisine. And then you've also got you know there's there's the um, you know the the yamcha sweet things like uh, in in Chinese cooking. So you've got um, the okay. naway bao, so that um, which is the custard, little steamed custard bow that, mm-hmm. that are like a staple of, of yamcha trolleys all over, and then and then there's one that it's particularly big in Hong Kong where they make it, and it's this it's a really creamy tart that's made with um, with salted duck. Yolks, so it's sort of got this salty sweet kind of thing. So there's sort of like you know, you put it in with a sugary custard, but it all but the, the egg yolks, are, the duck egg yolks are salted and they're in those tiny little pastry shells. So it's, um, you know, the kind of it, it goes across all cuisines, oh. it's like it just pops up everywhere.
2: Is it so, possible that the custard tart is being pretty much usurped by the Portuguese tart? Yeah, yeah, mm. basically. I think you know,
8: it's kind of it is a different beast, but at the same time, it's sort of like I. Don't think that we should be too down on our, you know, chunky custard tart. <laughs> I think a lot of say at school at some stage or another. I don't know if they do that anymore, oh, no but
1: Yeah, I remember I'd always go to the bakery with my sister. She'd get a custard tart, I'd get a jam tart.
8: Yeah, So right. I feel
1: like I've really boxed custard. Yeah,
8: yeah, yeah, yeah. Just
1: to the tart.
8: Yeah, exactly, exactly. And it's kind of like, you know, and things like, you know, the vanilla slice, of course, it's sort of like, Beautiful. you know, one of the great ones, so... Mm. It,
2: and the name of this uh, Japanese dish, if we want to give that a go? It's called
8: Chawan Mushi. So it's C H A W A N M U S H I. And it's in quite a few Japanese restaurants, but check it out because it is seriously one of my favorite things in the world to eat, particularly when it's done well. And when it's done well, it's kind of got that beautiful little wobble to the, like oh. you, can, you can get your, your little, because they're in there are beautiful little cups with a lid and it's sort of presented to you at the table and you get the waft of dashes. Alright, settle down. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. uh, Michael Harden, thanks very much. <laughs> no worries.
2: Triple R. Zoya Patel is a writer and regular book critic for The Guardian and Canberra Times, former chair of the Stella Prize judging panel, winner of the ACT Young Woman of the Year, and author of 2018's No Country Woman, a memoir of not belonging. Now, the co-host of the Margin Notes podcast has released her debut novel, Once a Stranger, described as a story of two sisters divided by tradition, and to tell us about it, the author joins us now. Zoya, welcome back to Triple R.
9: Thank you so much for having me.
2: It's our deep and abiding pleasure. Can you tell us the uh, about this family and the circumstances that have brought them together?
9: Yeah, absolutely. So we meet Ayat, who is the youngest of two daughters. Um, Their father passed away when they were quite young, um, and they live with their mother, Khadija, who has come to Australia as a migrant and is struggling to kind of keep her family unit going after the loss of her husband, um, but particularly to try and retain that cultural connection for her daughters. Um, They're Indian, they're Muslim, and it's a really big challenge for her. When we meet Ayat, she has been estranged from her sister and her mother for six years because she chose to be with... White Australian man, and that's super taboo. Um, and they're forced back together because Cathedra, um, the mother, is diagnosed with an illness. So we kind of meet them at that point, and then see them try and bring everything back together.
2: Yeah, and the fighting for the mother's attention does that is that. Well, how, how prominent is the is the mother and the the pull of what of expectation and disappointment?
9: I think. A child of any immigrant family would say that the pull of parental disappointment (laughs) is a significant factor in our lives. Um, But yeah, I think the thing that I was trying to show in terms of that balance of Cathedra's expectations of her daughters, but also her daughter's loyalty to their mother and their desire to not disappoint her um, was that it's really complex on both sides. So, you know, where Ayat is trying really hard to forge her own life and to live the Australian life that she wants, her sister Layla provides this contrast as someone who... She's really anxious about keeping the family unit together and keeping that sense of loyalty to her mother and um, living up to those expectations. So between the two sisters, you kind of see that push-pull, I guess, of those the kind of chaos of those expectations backdropped against all the expectations of Australian culture and Australian life. Mm.
2: Do you have any sense of when we grow up and reach the age that our parents are at when they made epic decisions? And the perspective that that can provide. Oh my god, all the time.
9: I'm. I think I'm at the age now. I'm older than my parents were when they came to Australia from Fiji, where I was born. And you know, all my siblings. I have three siblings, um, and they were like 31, 32, moving a big family to a new country. And I look back on it now, and I'm like, what were you doing? Like, how did you? So I think part of what's interesting is having that perspective. And then having that empathy for their point of view and why they were so anxious to kind of keep our culture alive in our lives. Because at the time I thought it was this weird thing. I used to be like, why did you bring us to Australia if you don't want us to be Australian? And now I'm like, oh, it's all they knew. So they're so protective but they're also trying to protect us in the context of all they know, which happens to be a culture that we weren't raised in. So, you know, super tricky.
0: (laughs) It's such a loving and a beautiful novel, uh, which explores all of the things which you have been speaking about. Um, And alongside that, there was this beautiful feature that you wrote uh, in The Age that that was sort of, it was described as it's Love My Way and it was a Sunday life story and it kind of brought it to a a personal perspective. And I guess we were all kind of curious. um, And I guess specifically heard a quote from an author recently, Kamala Shamsi, who was speaking at uh, Wheeler Centre, who said, I don't start a novel thinking I have things to show you or tell you, but I start a novel because there are things that I want to discover. And so I guess, is that something that you can relate to, that this novel was a process of discovery for you?
9: Yeah, absolutely. And I started writing the book in 2016, so a long time ago. And I kind of sat down and I was like, Zoe, you're just going to have to write a book because if you want a career as a writer, a book is a logical next step. And there were so many other things that I would have preferred to write but I just could not get this issue, I guess, out of my head. And obviously, you know, it is close to my own experiences. And at that time, um, me and my family had only just kind of come back to a point of feeling um, like like we could move forward through, you know, my own decision to be with a white Australian partner. Um, there are parallels. So my dad at my book launch was like, I noticed that the father is killed off very early. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think I needed to explore it. But I also do agree that you kind of write your way through issues sometimes. And in kind of pulling that perspective of cathedra in the mother, the one perspective that I personally, you know, don't have, I definitely think I was trying to write my way to understanding where that comes from and, and trying to figure out, you know, what drives that fierce, fierce love um, that can then turn into something so absolute as kind of cutting your child out for a decision they make.
0: Absolutely. And as you said beautifully in the article too, it's the sort of thing you can't Google, can you? You have to sort of really go deeper. deeper. I tried though. I was on
9: Yahoo Answers <laughs> like a lot. back in 2012, you know, <laughs> desperately trying to figure it out. What's really interesting is I wrote a piece around that time on my blog because I'm a you know, millennial and that's what we did. And I wrote how to deal with disappointing your parents and the number of people who contacted me over the years because of that piece because there were just other children of migrants all across the world who were googling the exact same thing and trying to figure out and it was everything from I want to do a degree that they don't agree with or I'm gay or um, yeah I have a partner who's you know not from the same cultural background and I think part of writing this book was also to try and create a story that people can find a little bit of solace in or a little bit of resonance with their own battles.
0: Absolutely. It's a source of community very much.
1: I'm curious um, to know how when there is such like parallels to uh, the book and your own life, what is your approach when writing these characters? Like is there parts, you know, obviously you might be drawing on your own experiences, your own parents, but to what point do you let the characters in the book become their own person or, yeah, what's that process like?
9: It's so interesting that you put it that way because I never thought of these characters as being from my own life. Okay. Like when I started writing them, I mean, there are obvious parallels, but I don't relate to Ayat, the main character, very much because we're very different. Mm -hmm. And same thing with Layla and same thing with Khadija, right? So I think I tried to pull the themes together, but I did try and frame them through these perspectives that were unique. I guess so that I wasn't bringing bias to it so that I could kind of open myself up to what the full spectrum of, um, potential reasons could be for the way that each of them behaves. So, um, you definitely kind of have to balance that a bit, but I also think, you know, I used to joke and be like, oh, you know, when you're a woman of color and you write these stories, everyone thinks it's real life. And then I literally went and wrote a story that, you know, closely mirrors my real life. So I am part of the problem. Um, but it's been interesting because when I wrote it, I didn't think about my own experience too much other than what naturally kind of filters through. Whereas in speaking about it now this many years later and, you know, going through the edits and things like that, I was able to, I guess, actually use that experience in a productive way. So, yeah, I think sometimes the distance is what makes that process a bit easier.
2: (laughs) You've described some of the process or writing maybe the initial drafts as excruciating. Uh, Why go on? So, I mean, there must be sometimes where it's like, I mean, excruciating such a strong emotion. Why put yourself through it?
9: I think I'm really stubborn. And <laughs> I also have this thing where like I'd written so much of it and I think I got to about 40,000 words and felt like I'd really written myself into a corner, like it wasn't working. And, but I'm so stubborn. I was like, I am not wasting this 40,000 words. I do not have it in me to go back to the beginning. And so I unpicked a lot of it and kind of went back and changed it and, and built off that. But I think I have such a sense of um, ambition in terms of wanting to complete things. And even though I didn't think it was a very good book, it was what I'd started. So I felt like I just had to push through. And to be completely honest, when I sent it in to um, the literary agent that then signed me, I genuinely was shocked when she called me to be like, this is great. And I remember being on the phone being like, did you read the same (laughs) book? Because it just felt so hard and boring and tough and it felt like nothing happened and I think that's part of the issue when you're trying to write fiction for the first time because and a lot of first-time writers say this to me because I mentor writers as well and they're like nothing's happening and I'm like nothing needs to happen it's fine people read this anyway I don't get it but like it's a thing just kind of keep writing there's something that happens despite you feeling like nothing happened oh, you know
0: You have achieved it so beautifully and congratulations. It is a stunning novel and deeply absorbing and the, the characters from the very start are so vivid that you really are drawn into their lives, whatever sort of dramatic events or not might be occurring. And one thing we did want to talk to you about before you have to go is that... Aside from completing this novel, which is an incredible accomplishment, you'll also be participating in what's described as a literary death match this Friday at the Wheeler Centre. Can you tell us how you're preparing for this? And, and indeed, what what it is, even as an event. I
9: think I'm preparing just with a lot of anxiety. <laughs> um, so my understanding is that this is like a format that comes from overseas and it's going to be like a fun thing for the audience with like comedy and hijinks and maybe there's like a game show aspect. I clearly don't fully understand it.
0: Well, um, it does seem like there is a, a lot of spontaneity and improvisation going on, but the, it's described four writers, three judges, two finalists, one champion.
9: Yeah. And I don't know how that champion is crowned, but I do know that like we'll each be reading from our work and my concern is that as I've said to um you guys just before we came on air this is a sad book so it's not going to like energize people (laughs) so I'm hoping that I can um I can frame it in a way that um excites people and I've been I've been flicking through the pages trying to find a bit that isn't you know either deeply sad or needs a lot of context um (laughs) so like fingers crossed I managed to do that justice but otherwise I think it'll be um, yeah, trying to sneak something engaging and interesting into my intro and then no, apologise no for need tears, for, no tears need. in the audience.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, good luck with that death match. And in the meantime, Once a Stranger out via Hachette is on shelves now. And the author we've been speaking to, Zoe Patel. Congratulations and thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Triple Triple R. From bite into it Wednesday nights on Triple R. We're joined to talk tech by digital expert Dan Salmon. Morning, Dan. Good morning, Breakfasters. How are we all?
1: Good. We're good.
2: And. uh Absolutely intrigued by the topic that you're bringing this morning. Yeah,
3: look, I mean, it's it's an interesting one, and and I, and I enjoy the rhyme, the Google Doodle. Um, <laughs> like, like I was just saying, it's always amusing to say you're going to come on radio and talk about Doodles. But um, for for anyone who isn't familiar with the what the Google Doodle is, you you probably do know what it is. It's when Google on their homepage changes uh, their logo at the top to commemorate something, whether it's you know a significant birthday or something, you know a public holiday, something along those lines. Um, now. Now, for – you would assume that it's kind of a new-ish thing. Google, the Google Doodle has actually been around for longer than Google has been as a company. What? But So, so going back to the kind of, you know, proto-tech bro days of Sergey Brin and Larry Page starting Google, they – Decided to go to Burning Man, which is about the most proto-tech (laughs) bro-thing you can do. And um, while they were, you know, going to Burning Man, they basically needed to put like an out-of-office up on the website. And what they did was put the little Burning Man stick figure on the logo behind one of the O's to say, hey, guys, we're at Burning Man. We're not going to be able to do anything uh, for the next few days. And then when they came back from Burning Man, they incorporated Google as a company. So the the, the Google doodle is older oh, than that's fascinating. Yeah. yeah, I only found this out in the research that I was doing. <laughs> um, now, uh, like I was saying, it's, it's done to celebrate particular days. Um... But so, but for the first couple of years, they didn't really do much. So there was that first one for Burning Man, and then a couple of years later, they asked one of their um, uh, developers, whose name was uh, Dennis Huang, uh, to put together something for. Um, funnily enough, Bastille Day. Hmm. Well, I, I would have thought it would be like an American holiday, like Thanksgiving or um, you know, uh, Halloween, something like that. But yeah, no, Bastille Day in nineteen in two thousand was the kind of first doodle doodle. That was a weird thing to say. <laughs> <laughs> and then from there on they were doing, you know, the the, the Christmas ones and, and, and the Thanksgiving ones, the Halloween ones. Um, they started branching out from holidays uh, in late 2000. It kind of started to really kind of ramp up very quickly. They, they did a kangaroo and a kayak for the Sydney Olympics.
0: Oh, yeah. indeed. So that was quite an early one. Very early one. Yeah. So,
3: so yeah, like it's it's been around for, you know, 25 years, the, the Google Doodle. Um, now while although they started with Dennis Wang being like you know the one person doing it it has developed into a multi-person team across countries they do uh these days you'll do they'll do ones that are specific for certain places so they'll do an anzac day one here for australia and new zealand they i actually looked up today's um uh, doodles today is um and i'm going to mispronounce this nowruz which is the persian spring festival and the new year in the persian calendar which also happens to be the uh, uh spring equinox in the northern Territory and the uh Equinox here. I, I, I do want to say the actual Equinox is in about seven minutes.
0: Oh, wow. Stay tuned.
3: Yeah. yeah stay tuned. It's going to happen.
1: <laughs> you can learn a lot. You, you can Google learn a lot. Just,
3: I googled it, finally. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Um, they, they've, had, they've had about 5,000 doodles over the years. And they've got... They get about 7,000 su- uh, suggestions each year from people around the world. And, you know, they've gotten more I suppose, involved and more, more complicated as time has gone on as te- and as technology has increased. And uh, do, do you guys have any personal favorites that
0: you yes, remember? I do actually. Yeah. I, I'm surprised that well, I have one, but I, I know that I'm stressed and I know that I'm procrastinating when I deeply engage with yeah. the Google. Mm-hmm. And so the night before we started actually this year, the, the 29th of Jan, they had a bubble tea. Uh, I saw that one. I loved it. I spent a lot longer than I should have mm. being a bubble tea pervert, uh, merch, merchant. <laughs>
3: yeah, <laughs> Because it was like a, it was like a selling
0: selling a shop exactly. Wasn't it? Yeah. Had to get the quantities right, fulfill all the orders. It was very enjoyable. It's
3: kind of like remember that lemonade game from many many yes. years ago. It was a similar kind of deal. Um, so so the, the the first interactive one was in uh, two thousand and ten. And that was to uh, celebrate 30 years of Pac-Man. And I actually played that one yesterday. Uh, So it's like a little Google logo to kind of go around um, the the sort of Pac-Man thing. And I I lost many, many times and got no work done. (laughs) Uh, um, Then uh, a couple of my personal favorites. So uh, May 23rd, 2012 was the 83rd birthday of Robert Moog, who invented the synthesizer, or in the Moog synthesizer. And they made the Google Doodle as a synthesizer, and it was almost as confusing
2: and difficult to play (laughs) as an actual MOOC. So what's going on there? The MOOC estate gets in touch and says... Well, yeah,
3: I I think what happens is that Google, like, they'll get a suggestion, and if if it is a trademark or something along those lines, they'll reach out to the trademark and say, hey, do you mind if we do that? And most of the time, you know, the company's pretty okay with doing it, because, I mean, you know, it's free advertising on the the front page of the internet. Um, So sometimes, I mean, certainly the ones where it's kind of like a birthday or a commemoration, I couldn't find whether they get permission for the Person. I mean, if it's you know, someone from 150 years ago, they're mm-hmm. probably not going to get permission from the estate of the person. But mm-hmm. if it's if it's someone recent or someone who's you know still alive, they, they they will reach out to them. They rarely do things for people who are still alive or, or things that are kind of um, to commemorate things that are current. I remember once, I in a previous job, we tried. I was partnering with Google on something, and we tried to get them to do a doodle for the thing that we were partnering on, and they were like, "Nah, it's too current. We don't do that kind of thing. It's got to yeah. be historical. It's got to be of of significance. Yeah. It's not advertising."
2: What which... well, if Dan Sherman gets cancelled? Yeah. There, we're going to get in trouble. That's
3: exactly it. That's exactly it. They don't. They don't want me to get cannibal. No, I don't want to get <laughs> <laughs> But um, yeah. Look, it's 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 an interesting idea. That, that, and the idea that they kind of use use it. So there have been arguments to say that you know it's like it's like McDonald's using Gandhi to kind of advertise themselves. And I'm like, yeah. Look, okay, that's an argument. I'm not sure if I necessarily agree with it. But um, you know, Google is. An advertiser, that's what they do. They, they they sell everything. So everything they put up on the front page is going to be seen through that lens. The fact that they're bringing in things that are, are of significance to, you know, other people and, you know, I wouldn't have known about the Persian New Year Festival if I hadn't seen this thing today. So that's that... I think it's a, it's a good way of raising awareness for things that you necess- yeah. might not necessarily, you know, the, 80, the 82nd birthday of someone who did something really important but you had no idea.
0: Yeah, an okay. educational platform in that way. Absolutely.
3: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they also do things like Ettencena's birthday, which is kind of okay. <laughs> <laughs> but at the same time, do we need to know?
1: Yeah, I know that they've definitely, like, highlighted certain figures to, like, specifically, like, the female um, uh, figures throughout history that have, like, oh, I never would have kind of gone down this path. Absolutely. And then I've seeked out, like, a podcast as a result Ultimate, mm, um, yeah,
3: totally. I, I found out about who um, Ada Lovelace was from a Google Doodle, yeah. which, you know, for someone who knows tech, that's kind of embarrassing to say. But, like, at the same time, it's, yeah, you you do learn these things.
2: Yeah, so much. Is the art – what's the art team like? Are they famous?
3: They they aren't famous. They're Google developers. I mean, they, they if, if it is – an artist that they are representing, they will involve the artist if the artist is still alive. But most of the time, I think they've got a team of about 300 people that, you know, do their illustrations and do the developing just of doodles. Yep. Uh, because, you know, if they're doing 5,000 a year... And, and a lot of them are localised, so uh, lo- looking through the history, there are a lot of cricket-based ones on the south subcontinent. Like, if there's a big match between, you know, India and Bangladesh, they'll mm. do, like, an India-Bangladesh cricket match one. Um, but And, you know, they will use the developers in those countries to do those things because, you know, they have the cultural sensibilities, they have the knowledge, of that kind of thing.
1: Yeah, yeah. I just remembered my favourite one. It was Halloween 2020. The game with the little cat in the, um, and it goes through, like, space and then it goes underwater and you have to catch the ghosts. (laughs) I remember that one. (laughs) I lost a day. (laughs) they
3: they love cats. Yeah. uh, So last year. The internet loves cats. The internet does love cats. So so they're playing to their market, I suppose. But I think it was was 2021, so around about the time of the Tokyo Olympics, they did, like, a six-week series of, like, games, like, you know, Olympic Sports with cats, Amazing. and 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 I can't, remember, I can't remember the name. You you were a particular cat. I think his name was Lucky, and you and you played as Lucky throughout all the all these sports. they they're also pretty responsive. Speaking of the moon, they actually. Um, did one where... On I love
1: that. Speaking of Speaking the moon. Speaking of the moon. How's that for really a <laughs> yeah, segue? Yeah,
3: um, they, they did one where, on the day that they discovered water on the moon, they actually changed the Google Doodle to represent the fact that they discovered water on the moon. Amazing. Yeah. So they, they do do real-time They're reactive. Stuff.
2: Very reactive. <laughs> and I've got to say, it sounds like one of the cushiest gigs in tech being yeah. involved <laughs> oh, in the Google I'm
3: Doodle. just going to draw some stuff, come up with some ideas. <laughs> yeah. That's what everyone who moves into tech wishes that they do. I, I, I think it's just like, come on, guys. It's, we don't work. We play ping pong and we we draw things. That's That's what we do. Do you think they
1: could ever hijack it? Like if they wanted to have like a striker's work? I
3: I reckon they possibly could. I mean look, it's, I quit. Yeah, yeah. Just make like blood spatter on the Pay us more. Exactly, that's a
1: good
3: idea.
2: As it happens Dan Vanessa DeHolka says hola from Mexico City this morning. I just got the message
1: from
3: her as well. So what
2: on earth is she doing at two o'clock in the morning in Mexico? (laughs) And uh, the most recent one in Mexico was Mario Molina's 80th birthday. Oh, there you go. A Mexican chemist. Happy birthday. <laughs> happy birthday, Maria. Thanks very much, uh, Dan and Vanessa. Thank you and happy solstice.
1: Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the
7: app. Thanks so much for being here. means a lot.
1: I visited my mum on Sunday. I hadn't seen her in a couple of weeks since I was in Adelaide, so it was a real treat. We had a lot to catch up on. Um, I get along like famously with my mum. I find her very funny. Um, but... I guess it's a bit of a pivot into the broader thing. <laughs> but we, all, we obviously um, all know that Australians love to renovate, don't they? What oh, are you about yeah. to say, Daniel? You're smirky. No, no I,
2: was, <laughs> I was just thinking about it. I've chatted to your mum and she does not feel the same way about you. <laughs> <really>. oh. <laughs>
0: Not true. It's true.
1: <laughs> Not true. But I in- was breached and she's held it against me.
0: <laughs> no. But I, I do know, yeah, there's many programs that are dedicated to renovations.
1: Yes, absolutely. Um, but obviously I think you, yeah, and my mum is no exception. She she loves to renovate. But I think a lot of people could maybe have the misconception that you, you know, it, it costs a lot of money to renovate. You need to own a house to renovate. And obviously, you know, with the the living costs, I know there's a lot of pressure on the construction um, industry at the moment as well. So I was r- reminded by one of my mum's approaches to renovating that I think could could be helpful for people in these kind of tougher times is that she, the bulk of her renovating that she does is hypothetical. <laughs> <laughs> um, it is, I feel like a day doesn't go by where she doesn't kind of walk into a space and she takes me through what, how she would renovate it mm. and it's always she tells me what nol- walls she'd knock down. Typically she'd put the bathroom where the kitchen was and the kitchen where the bathroom was. Yeah. Then she'd insert some French doors and decking all around
0: beautiful so visionary
1: yeah she's an absolute yeah. visionary every kind of like share house i come she'll oh i in. she'll always start all up to me and she goes well you know what i'd do I'd knock that wall out. I'd put the kitchen where the bathroom is, the bathroom where the kitchen is. And she'd even try put decking around an apartment. Yeah. Um, awesome. These are
2: major structural changes. <laughs>
0: yeah, <aren't
1: they>? absolutely. <laughs> it is. The share houses. I think she just wants to knock out all walls and just like French <laughs> doors leading to Creating nowhere. A,
0: yeah, space where everyone feels like they're participating. in.
1: Yeah, I love it. And it's not restricted just to houses as well. She'll try and renovate whatever she could. She'd probably come into this studio. She could take out, like, key walls, mm. but it's it's not about functionality for my mum. It's about light. Yeah.
2: Lights. I mean, my view largely is that that's a terrific attitude because it? it's the anticipation of the change that's exciting. Yeah, and so you get to live in the perpetual mm. anticipation of yes. renovation. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: She just looks at things and sees potential. She's the type of person that she loves to plan. She loves to entertain people, loves food. Like we will be eating like say Christmas lunch or something like that and she'll be talking about next year's Christmas lunch of how she could have done it better.
2: Yeah, uh, I, I think there's also maybe an element of the lockdowns that we went through all this, you know, last couple of years where if you didn't do it now, it's it's not going to happen. Yeah, yeah. Like you had your chance Yes.
0: and if you didn't restart the house, you blew it.
1: Yeah, <laughs> she'll do that though. She does actually do um, actual renovating as well.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask because obviously a real visionary but this comes from a Perspective of practical kind of application as well.
1: Yeah, she did. When we were growing up, she did a couple of houses and sold them and, yeah, it was always kind of doing it on a bit of a budget. I remember she did. She painted a two-storey weatherboard house she renovated when I was about 19 and I remember me and my friends would go out like uni night on Thursday and then she'd lure me and my friends out of the bedroom for breakfast and next thing we know we'd be doing an undercoat at the side of the house. (laughs) Like Word spread quickly and recently – when I visited her on Sunday, um, she, she always goes, do you know, have you noticed anything? Oh. Even if she hasn't renovated, she's moved around the house. Like she'll kind of move the living room. It's kind of a very open planned house. She'll she'll rearrange the furniture quite drastically a, would,
0: a lot. What would be an example where you've been tested and it's been quite a subtle sort of shift?
1: Oh, I mean, she would even do little things like ornaments around the house. Like she'd put them in really bizarre spots. Like she had these three little like the three wise men, and they're always like in a really bizarre spot. Super She just moves them around the house. That's probably the most, the more kind of detailed stuff she does of the work. But today, on Sunday, I was a bit stumped by her work and then she did, she told me, now she's going to be 70 this year, she repaved her entire courtyard. Yeah, big blue stone pavers and they weren't level. She, like someone had done the work for her and she was like, it really annoyed me. So she spent the, the long weekend leveling all of the ground and then kind of moving all of these big kind of blue stone papers. It was about seven meters by five meter courtyard, but it cracked me up what she said. She's like, I'm like, mom, be careful. Like you've got a bad knee or, you know, you've got to take care of your health and stuff like that. And she's like, oh no, it was fine. It was fine. She was really chuffed with their work. Look how level it is. And, and she's like, do you know why I could do it? I go, I don't know, because you're an incredibly hard worker. You put a lot of time and effort into levelling the ground. Great answer. And she goes, because I'm doing Pilates. <laughs> <laughs> oh,
2: good. That's the secret. That's, that's the that's secret. Scott Cam doesn't tell you about that, <laughs> oh, <does> Yeah. Woo! <laughs> ah, that's right. Triple R. You'll notice on your calendar that today, March 22, marks World Water Day. And to help us celebrate, we're joined by General Manager of Infrastructure Operations at Melbourne Water, David Norman. David, welcome to Breakfasters.
7: Great to be here, Dan. Thanks for having me.
2: Now, uh, congratulations on the big day. Yeah.
7: <laughs> yeah, it's an exciting day, isn't it? Like, water is just so important to the life of everyone across the world, and particularly us here in Melbourne.
2: Yes. Now, what's your association with Water.
7: Yeah. So, so my association with water is, you know, um, responsible for looking after Melbourne's water supply and also looking after our sanitation services. So, two very important uh, contributions to the uh, city's health and uh, well-being.
2: Yeah. Now. Do different parts of Melbourne get different water? Uh,
7: there are some different supplies that feed into into Melbourne, and uh, predominantly, quite a lot comes from our protected catchments, which is a really important part of our water supply, um, sitting out in the hills to the east of the city. Uh, and and that those protected catchments really offer us the um, the benefit of really high quality water, and and means we don't actually have to provide as much treatment as what some other cities around the world would need to do um, when they're sourcing water from, from other locations, mm. um, which has has led us to have the um, most um, best tasting water uh, in Australia. Uh, last year, we took out that award and that's a really huge accolade to all of our people out on the ground that are operating our water supply system Um the, yeah, was, the guys and girls it on was the ground
0: through this uh, achievement, that I discovered that there's such a thing as a water sommelier. So, someone who's responsible for determining the quality. Well, on what criteria can we say confidently that Melbourne has the best tasting water?
7: Yeah, um, taste um, and the, the yeah the um, the, the uh, sm- smell of the water is really pleasant and and also. The aesthetics of the water, so how it looks. It looks very clean and clear, and um, we're very, yeah, as I said, really fortunate. Mm. We have those pristine, protected catchments that supply that water to yeah. the east of Melbourne.
2: We're used to hearing tannins and terroir and uh, mouthfeel. Uh, mouthfeel. Is there language around water tasting where we can stand behind as Melburnians and be proud?
7: Oh yes, ab- absolutely. Uh, they they're quite technical terms, but that it's it I guess it's like uh tasting fine wines really well, is not it and, so- and that's what the judges in these um these competitions actually do. So so they they do blind testing and they uh, are seeing how, you know, neat it is to the palate so yeah okay
2: and now what is with Australia's bottled water use Mm. why is that skyrocketing
7: oh we we don't promote obviously the uh, use of um, bottled water Uh, sometimes it is a necessity because it might Be the only safe water that is available at a particular location, but um, generally speaking, our tap water is fantastic. So we we don't encourage people to be you know buying bottled water here here in in Melbourne. Like why why would you? Um, It it is so much cheaper to get it out of tap. Um, It's it's high quality and um, and we 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 want to promote our product as opposed to uh, you know encouraging people to purchase. bottled water, which then consumes more plastics Ab- and other things as well.
0: Absolutely, so. absolutely. And on World Water Day, I suppose there are a number of issues that we're focusing on, and you've, you've identified them in terms of supply and access. I suppose in your role, it's such an enormous responsibility. Can you say something? tell us some of the challenges that you face and and sort of the ways in which we can preserve what we have i suppose mm,
7: yeah so so one of the really important things is we we look to plan into the into the future so right now we are really fortunate our water supplies are at 92 percent like that's that's fantastic we've come off the back of like three consecutive La Ninas, so water supplies are good but it's important that we are planning into the future and planning for diversification of our water supplies so we've got the desalination plant which also contributes to the security of our supply here in Melbourne but we can't rest on those those laurels we know that um, with climate change and the like and drying trends, those, those um, storages can drop pretty quickly. So it's really important that we continue to plan into the future. We're looking at different sources, including providing um, more opportunity for access to recycled water, both stormwater recycling, um, recycled water from our uh, sewage treatment plants for fit-for-purpose use, so for irrigating agriculture sports grounds, uh, you 'll see some of the uh, residential developments closer to our treatment plants are utilizing uh, third pipe recycled water for you know watering gardens toilet flushing etc so all all really important things to diversify and manage against that future water security risk
1: because it is that 's a big kind of conservation effort we could look at is it 's like the flushing of the toilet that uses mm. a lot of water and there are those toilets. is that kind of like what you mean when you talk about recycling in the backwater. You know those toilets that self-fill, like where you flush it and then the um, the water from the toilet comes out and you can wash your hands in it? I mean, it's that's, that sounds shocking. I've explained it very poorly. But do you know oh, the ones not, I'm not, talking about? It, would,
7: it wouldn't be coming from within oh, okay. the toilet. Yeah. But um, <laughs> I, I think uh, certainly what we're looking to promote is fit-for-purpose recycled water. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and the sorts of recycling I'm talking about there are where well, we have purple pipes, so mm. in those new developments where a house will be supplied with both potable water um, from our mains system, but also a purple pipe which provides recycled water from the local um, sewage treatment plant. Treated to a cl- class A, class A, so really high quality water, um, but that affords that opportunity for lessening the demand on our pristine catchment mm. water, which is, is it, what we want to achieve.
2: Is it my imagination, or are the sporting grounds near treatment plants a little bit more lush?
7: Oh, I think you might be onto something, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we and we want to increase that opportunity for them to to access those those recycled water uh, opportunities, and the future um, strategies are really promoting those those. Types of opportunities expanding that recycled water
2: network. Okay, what's the diesel plant like to wander around?
7: Yeah, it's pretty pretty <laughs> complex, Dan. Yeah, no, really, really impressive piece of infrastructure, um, and it, it provides uh, an, up to about a third of the city's water supply when it's in when it's in use. So it's got that opportunity to provide that. So a really important part to the diversification and um, you know cl- climate-independent water supply, which is critical to the security of our our water supply system.
0: And I guess on this World's Water Day, it is. I suppose an omnipresent feature of our lives. But what would you like people to be reflecting on in particular on this on this day?
7: Yeah, I, I think the really important thing for um, Melbournians to appreciate is the great quality water we have got. We are very fortunate. There are a lot of people in the world that don't have our uh, access to our systems, uh, our quality of water, uh, the sanitation services, the health of the city is really critical. But I just want to do a shout out for the target one hundred and fifty litres per day per person water conservation initiative really want people to kick into to that no more than four minute showers um, think about how you're using your water in the house um, oh, yeah, turn the could. tap off when you're brushing your teeth these types of little initiatives the little things you can do that will go a long way if the five million people of Melbourne um, take that approach
2: mm. how much water
7: do you drink how much do you drink? Do you? Personally? Do I drink? Oh, in a in a day, I'm I'm, I'm hoping I get about a liter or so. Okay, yeah,
2: thereabouts. And have we offered you any this morning?
7: You have. We have. That, and you got that offered me a very nice glass of our product this
5: morning.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and just finally, what's your favourite dam or place to visit?
7: Oh, uh, look, I'll give a sh- shout out to the Upper Yarra Res. It's a really nice part at the top of um, the Yarra Valley. Uh, it's just had the park there um, redone, and it's been reopened to to the public. It's a nice day trip up there. There's another one, the Thompson Res. If you want to go a little bit further out of Melbourne, it's 40 years old next month, so there'll be some celebrations is that up one? There. Steve
2: Brax went over there in a chopper, is that right?
7: He might have, yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: Uh,
1: one final question from me. Um, how do you like to take your water? Do you like a slice of lemon, lime, ice, or neat?
7: Uh, neat with a little bit of ice i reckon Beautiful. that <laughs> just just a nice chill on the edge
2: well happy world water day we've been joined by david norman general manager of infrastructure operations at melbourne water david thank you
7: no, thank you team triple r
2: Critic, journalist, ghostwriter, and professional people person, Simone Yabaldi, is here <laughs> to talk movies morning. Did
4: anyone hear a little extra bit of juice in the intro?
0: Oh, as as far as amplification of the volume.
4: No, just uh, a little bit of a grind at the end that I've never heard before. Ah, no.
0: excellent! Weird. Some textural surprises.
4: Nice. <laughs> <laughs> if anyone could
5: surprise me. <laughs> 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 it's
2: now, uh, it's where's you? You have such broad cultural tastes. Where does photography sit with you?
4: I know very little about it, but I love to come upon it. Like I, you know, I. Man, I'm, let's say I'm I'm a little bit more everyman with the uh, visual art world than I am with the film world. I always go and visit contemporary art galleries when I'm travelling, but I'm a noob, really. Like. So Nan Golden, who's the subject of the film that I'm going to talk about today, is a name that I've heard. And I had this very loose idea that she was associated with capturing uh, the 1970s Lower East Side New York queer scene. And that is about really all that I knew about her. So I love coming, I really love documentary, and one of the reasons why is because you get um, with the best. I mean, obviously, you can jump on YouTube and watch endless top 10 lists of. I don't know best guitar solos or most explicit sex photos or whatever else is on YouTube. There's just know. those two. Yeah, yeah, we know what you're looking at on YouTube. Yeah, right? I don't I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not okay with YouTube, but uh, but you know, if a truly great documentary can capture not just the facts of um, an important piece of culture, but they can also capture the um, uh, the emotion. Um, the, the emotional import and the cultural import in a way that is just just beautifully packaged. And that is what I'm talking about today with a film called All the Beauty and Bloodshed about the photographer, Dan Golden. Is that the length of answer you anticipated? That anticipate? is a,
2: a beautifully summarised introduction to
4: all of it. Now, uh, Laura Poitras. Yeah, Laura Poitras. She made Citizen Four about Edward Snowden and My Country, My Country. I mean, she's made a bunch of documentaries and is probably one of the world's leading political documentary filmmakers, Um, My Country, My Country was about the occupation of Iraq that she made in 2006, so she has a um, storied career, I think she's up to several Academy Award nominations at this point, and All the Beauty and Bloodshed um, was nominated for Best Documentary. She's pretty great and she gets, um, she's used to working in what are kind of legally fraught situations, like Citizen Four was really you're talking about, like, high-level kind of um, spycraft and uh, international diplomacy. And in the case of All the Beauty and Bloodshed, while the film um, has this kind of two-tone narrative, so it's in part about Nan Golden's career, her personal, her incredibly fraught and traumatised personal story and the emergence of her work through that, from that story, Um But it's also about her campaigning against the Sackler family who owned Purdue Pharma, who were responsible for the OxyContin uh, epidemic in America and and the ensuing 20 years of crisis since they marketed it as a completely safe and non-addictive pain medication. So, um, but in the movie nan golden's activism which is in very recent years is not against purdue farmer who were being pursued civilly and um and i think criminally at the time that her activities were taking place who she was going after as a photographer uh, this venerated photographer who had her works collected in major collections all around the world she's going after the sackler family name the owners of purdue because their name as she says, their name has been the, the their blood money has been washed through the cultural institutions of the world. So their name is on buildings and wings, or was on buildings and wings of the Louvre, the Met, the Guggenheim, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, the Tate. Um, so she, with a very small group of people. Basically, so, so Nan, I should say a bit more about her as a photographer because it's important to the film. So she grew up in Boston in a kind of suburban Jewish family. She lost her sister quite young in incredibly tragic circumstances that she identifies as being part of a kind of incredibly oppressive suburban experience that they both lived through. This kind of triggered her to go and seek out the freaks, the weirdos um, and the others, which in early 1970s um, America... She in Boston, she landed in the kind of um this emergent scene of drag queens, um, who were and, and people who were just essentially non-binary or gender non-conforming, and she started documenting, you know, were her close friends and family for the next two decades, including through the AIDS crisis and she documented with a kind of um just a, like a fierce vulnerability and also respect for her subject. So she she was distinct in, in capturing drag queens of the 1970s and that she wanted to represent these people uh, in their beauty and sexuality um, and she wanted them, in, in her words, to feel good about the work and be proud of being in the work and see themselves as as beautiful. Um, anyway, so that's the kind of who she was. But she, it was also a scene that was kind of heavily filtrated with... Um, drug use and she struggled with addiction at various points in her life and got clean and then had a wrist surgery later in life and was prescribed OxyContin and became very quickly addicted to OxyContin um, to the extent is this in the film or something that I read afterwards? No, I read it afterwards. When she was in the um, the nada of her uh, OxyContin addiction, she has this book called A Ballad of Sexual Dependency, this landmark work from the 1980s um, that she's most famous for. That She had 10 copies left and the tape bought one of those copies from her while she was addicted to OxyContin yeah. um, and was going to display it without her permission. Oh, my goodness. Um, and she used that money to go and buy black, marks, black market OxyContin because she couldn't get prescribed anymore. So she managed to, with her resources, kick the habit and then formed a group, the acronym of which is PAIN, um, Prescriptive... I can't remember what it's short for, but anyway, essentially, people who have either been addicted to or, or been impacted by OxyContin addiction, um, and they started prescription addiction intervention now. Thank <laughs> you. Anyway, they started these very small actions first in New York City, where obviously there, you know, several of the world's most acclaimed museums um, are found with the Sackler name on their walls, and she and this very small group of people started doing um, very small activist. Interventions that were beautiful and attention-grabbing, particularly because they were led by Nan Golden, who had works in these institutions. Um, and the guy, there's a there's a journalist in the film. I actually forgot to double-check this. I think it's the guy who went on to write Dreamland, which was the sort of seminal writing about the Oxycontin crisis. And he, when Nan originally called him and said, right, "We're going to do something. Let's organize," he was like, "Yeah, nice one. <laughs> Good luck with that." Um, but this, because the beast is too big to take down, or because the beast is too big, because to, we're talking about multi, multi, multi billionaires who are profoundly protected by their wealth, and essentially in terms of the personal impact of all the kind of lawsuits and all of the, it's no secret that Purdue knowingly marketed addictive drugs that have triggered 20 years of devastation in America and half a million deaths. Uh, The family have remained largely untouched. Mm -hmm. Mm. They siphoned $10 billion out of the company before folding it and not having to pay out all the civil lawsuits. But anyway, in the context of this film, not only do you get this incredibly personal story about Nan Golden's career but you also get to see how um, using your platform, using whatever leverage and power that you have, a small pebble – there's this very small group of people doing these lions at these museums, can, can turn into a Rolling Stone. Um, and it's beautiful. And it just, even though ultimately, you know, that these people, not unlike the kind of succession family that we've watched intimately, basically walk away morally um, unfazed. Uh, some wins were made. There was there are some real victories in the film that you get to celebrate.
0: Hearing you speak about it, it sounds like it made a very deep impact upon yeah. you. Watching
4: it. it did. I mean, Nan's photography is extraordinary. Her life perspective is extraordinary. The the links between vulnerable people. So there's a really strong um, thread between the ACT UP activism. Uh, of New York in the late 1980s that led to a shift in astigmatism and public policy around the AIDS crisis, which Naomi's involved in and documented and that connects through to to her activism around OxyContin. Um, It's it's powerful to see vulnerable people bonding together and um, achieving some results. Protests make me cry. Like, just watching protests make me cry. And I think it's because I feel... It's because I'm a really quite broken and cynical person and I feel like the futility so I cried a lot during the movie I don't know if other people would have that same experience but they do you know they do make a difference and I think the, the reason why I wanted to talk about this film today or the reason I was excited to come and talk about it once I'd seen it is because I want people to see it Mm. because the more people that see it, the more people that are going to associate the Sackler name with the devastation of OxyContin because right now there's going to be a lot of people in the world who actually don't understand that connection and the purpose of Nan's work and those activists' work is to take away the prestige associated with their name every time you step into one of these major institutions to make us all feel when we walk into the Tate and see the Sackler wing name that it's poison for the Tate and it's poison for our society, whether or not they take it down. Um, to to interrupt that legacy of philanthropy and and goodness and take away the association with with things that we love like art and associate it correctly with death.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, we've been speaking about Laura, Laura Portress's new documentary about Nan Golden and the fall of the Sackler family. It's called All the Beauty and the
4: Bloodshed. Where can we see it? Super limited release. I know that it's at Nova, but check all of your favourite indie cinemas.
2: All right, all the beauty in the bloodshed. Simone Baldi, thank you. Thanks, guys. Triple R.
0: You've been listening to a podcast of the best bits of the Breakfasters, which is the Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Feel free to get in touch with Breakfasters via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or via the Triple R website.